Add Passion and Stir is the podcast from Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir, a conversation that we have every week about the intersection of food and so many other issues that we care about, health, education, children, economic competitiveness. We're in Boston today, and we have the privilege of being with the First Lady of Massachusetts, Lauren Baker. So glad you're here, Lauren. Thank you for for doing this. Thank you. I'm psyched to be here. Thanks. Well, we're really thrilled. And Chris Hamill. Who Chris Himmel, sorry, Chris. Chris Himmel, who is a restaurateur, and not just a restaurateur, but uh, the owner uh, of three iconic restaurants in this area, Grill 23, Post 390, and Harvest, uh, and soon to have a restaurant in New York as well. Correct. Actually, we have four. four. We just took over a Bistro du Midi in April, so, which is next to the Four Seasons uh, in the Heritage and the Garden uh, overlooking Boston Public Garden, which we're really excited wow. about. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank okay, you. Okay, so we've yeah. yet to try that, but we've got to do it. Absolutely. Well, thanks for both being with us. You know, what I wanted to start with is kind of, you each kind of got to where you are through uh, certain family relationships that led you to where you are today. Um, so let me just start with you, Chris, because I think your family's been in the restaurant business for a very long time. Um, and you've been in it, I think, since you were 10 or 11, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I read. Uh, tell us how it all started for you. Well, I started uh, working, as you said, in the family business with uh, Grill 23 and Bar was the first restaurant that uh, my family opened in 1983. I was about five years old then, so I think they saw an early passion in restaurants for me. And as I grew up, and I think they could only keep me out until I was about 10 or 12. And then eventually they had to, they had to figure out ways for me to participate, starting with you know, the maintenance and prep cook and doing basically working my way up until I was able to go to, to school at the hotel school at Cornell University and really you know, honed into my skills and wanted to go out and uh, get outside experience. I went and worked for Danny Meyer in New York and worked at the French Laundry in Napa Valley before coming back in 2001 to our restaurant, The Harvest, which we opened in 1998 and is uh, actually a 42-year-old restaurant, so it's got incredible history. Most recently, I say most recently, but 10 years ago, we um, opened Post 390 in Back Bay, uh, which is an urban, upscale urban tavern, really more comfortable, approachable, really a neighborhood restaurant uh, in the Back Bay, and most recently, Bistro Midi, uh, which is a uh, Provençal French restaurant with coastally inspired New England uh, seafood and, and the such, basically, which means just good French food. But um, we're very excited about all the restaurants. And most recently, as you said, we're uh, opening a restaurant in New York and uh, the Hudson Yards Project in the uh, lower west side of Manhattan. Well, that's excellent. And Lauren, I'm assuming that we could get uh, Governor Baker to overlook any labor law violations of Chris being working at the age of 10 in these restaurants. <laughs> the statute of limitations has hopefully run. So we'll, 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 once this you know gets on the air, we'll count on you to protect him that way. Absolutely. We'll call it, you know. The curse law, right? No, I we're called <laughs> bring your kid to work day. Bring your kid to work That's day. That's kind Perfect. of what it was. I think, right? I, I, think I, I used to have to work there mostly when I got in trouble. First Lady Lauren Baker. You had a career, which most people know you as the First Lady of Massachusetts, but you also had a career before that. 
talk to us a little bit about that. And one of the things that's really struck me, and I know my wife Rosemary and I have been so inspired by just watching you and listening to you and following you and your passion for kids is you've you've managed to in some ways very generously detour from your own career to take advantage of this opportunity of to work on behalf of so many children and we've heard you talk about it and your authenticity and your passion really do inspire i just think you know many people regardless of party or regardless of their political ideology what's the transition been like for you how did you how do you kind of merge your various interests well, first, I think I want to take you everywhere I go. You can be my, my well, personal likewise, ambassador. Likewise. Thank you. <laughs> I had a whole career in advertising. I was in New York and then in Boston. When uh, Charlie and I got married, I moved up here. And um, I worked for Hill Holiday for 13 years, I think. I, I loved every bit of being in advertising. I'm really interested in, in communication strategy. And I'm really interested in figuring out what resonates with different people about products and things like that. And advertising is really fun. It's really fun. Really creative people, really interesting work. I loved it. I stopped and stayed home with our kids for a while as I was figuring out what, you know, what the next act would be for me. I got really involved in um, helping nonprofits. I basically took on a lot of pro bono nonprofit clients and brought the sort of Hill Holiday advertising skills that I had. I brought them to these nonprofits. So I did a lot of creating corporate identities for nonprofits, helping them create their their communication strategies and things like that. And when Charlie became governor, I recognized that I had this incredible platform, uh, an incredible opportunity to shine a light on on issues and and organizations that were important to me. And I decided to try to knit together my skills and my experience in advertising and marketing, my love for nonprofits, and my passion for helping kids. I focused really early on on the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families, and that gave me that introduced me to this opportunity that was a little nonprofit that was Im- sort of embedded inside the department, and it was called the DCF Kids Fund, and it was it was, was Department of Children and Families, the Massachusetts Kids Fund, De- right? And it um, this little thing was was created so that they could raise private dollars to um, get holiday gifts for foster kids, and I saw this as a model that could really really grow and serve all the children engage with the Department of Children and Families. And I knew the second I found it that this was going to be my thing because it allows me to use everything I've learned up until now and serve children who are so deserving of a little extra boost. And um, so that's why we created the Wonder Fund. And and what was the timing between getting married to Charlie Baker some 31 years ago, something like that, yes. right? <laughs> thank uh, you. And you realizing that this was going to be, he, he was going to be governor someday and I was going to maybe have an opportunity like this. You, did you know it 31 years ago? Well, I, it has always been a dream of his to be governor. Um, and he talked about it when we were really young. Um you know, but just like Chris talked about, you know, 
being an NBA player when he was <laughs> like, you know, when somebody says, oh, I'd love to be governor, you think that's cool. You know, awesome. I hope you achieve your dream. I just don't think I really thought that it was going to happen. I had no exposure to politics or government ever in my life until now. It was not part of your family? Not at all. As we got going in life, we, we talked a lot about this being something Charlie wanted to pursue when the time was right. We, you know, we tried it. it the first time we went after it was 2010. And um, it was, it, it has been ever since, just an incredible journey and a jaw-dropping kind of thing. So I think it wasn't until about 2006 when I thought, wow, this is really going to happen. This is really going to happen. We're going to go for it. Being able to watch someone you love pursue a dream and, and go on that journey with them is really special. It's a really incredible thing to be able to do. And Chris, I think about your family, which is in the restaurant business, but in some ways in a similar vein to what First Lady uh, Lauren Baker's been talking about. Uh, it's a very nurturing business. It's about taking care of people. It's really about you know making people feel a certain way. I'd love to hear how you think about what you want your guests and customers to experience when they obviously good food, but what else are you trying to have their experience be? I think that's really revolves around hospitality. Um, you know, early on in my career, I think lucky enough to be around people that sort of lived that instead of sort of just sort of practicing instead of preaching and hospitality, you know, the definition is caring how your actions affect others. And, and, you know, for me, I believe that my greatest responsibility for our organization is to find those people that have that sense of hospitality, because that's not something that is I need is taught to people. It's something that's inside of you. You know, we can teach you to set a table. We can teach you to pour a glass of wine. We can't teach you to genuinely care that the guest has a great experience. And the way that they come away feeling from that experience is really going to reflect on their overall impression of your restaurant, as well as in our case, we have, you know, four and soon to be five restaurants. And so for me, it's it's really important to find people. And that, that to me is our greatest strength. That's what we've built our success on. Food is certainly the most important aspect and that that's what people come for. Uh, but they also come for the experience. They come to feel welcome. They come to feel certainly to a certain degree for us to read their needs. Sometimes people come to Grill 23 and they want to be left alone. They want to have a meeting for an hour and, and it's up to us to anticipate those needs um, and then to uh, do our best to cater. We're, as you said, we're in the people business. And so uh, this is a service industry. And from my standpoint, um, I'm not there at every table. I can't be in every one of the restaurants all the time. So it's so incredibly important to surround yourself with people that share the same values that that we that that I share that my family tries to bring to our restaurants. We are a local restaurant company. We've Grill Twenty Three is thirty four years old. I wouldn't sign it guaranteed that there'll never be another Grill Twenty Three, but I would probably guess that if it does, it's probably not going to be from me. It might be from <laughs> from my kid someday, <laughs> or something because I, I think it's already enough to handle one. But uh, we also feel really strongly that that's why we're so successful in Boston is that uh, because we have that one restaurant. We can make decisions from the beef that we use and sourcing from one small family farm um, that other steakhouses can't make because they have to buy for 27 steakhouses instead of one. Um, we've held that value really close to us and applied it to our guests, to our team, and to our vendors, which is something that I've really um, tried hard, and also to our community. I think that that um, is probably the thing that I'm most passionate about today is that we've been given so much by the city uh, that I, I feel a real direct sense of obligation to give back and try to make a difference. And the way that I know how to do that is through food and 
through um, trying to make a difference through whether it be filling kids up on Thanksgiving or trying to teach kids how to make healthier choices uh, in their food. I think that's something that, that we've really made a priority. Well, Lauren, you talked about uh, the job as a platform, and I'd say for both of you, really, there's a platform. There's a platform as a restaurateur as well. You both get asked to do so many things. I know your passion, Lauren, is children, and you've I, I've seen that manifest itself in several ways. I've gotten to watch you up close, mostly through an annual event that an organization called Project 351 uh, puts on around Martin Luther King weekend, and it's about uh, inspiring service in young people. And the last few years that I've been there, you and your husband, Governor Baker, have this con- kind of conversation about service. But how do you, among all the potential priorities, even within the kids' space, you probably get pulled in a lot of directions, has to do a lot of different things. How do you kind of focus your own energies strategically? How do you decide what you want to spend time on? And you'd mentioned this uh, embedded within Department of Family and Children, what's now emerged as this Wonder Fund. Um, Is that kind of the sole focus of what you do or how do you prioritize? It's evolving. The Wonder Fund existed as a small nonprofit called the DCF Kids Fund for 17 years before I learned about it. The year before we relaunched it as the Wonder Fund, we served about 2,500 kids um, with emergency aid, and about 600 kids went to camp or got some sort of enrichment grant to take ballet lessons or play the trombone or do something like that. And in our first year after we launched, we launched in June of 2017. So in the the year following that, we were able to serve 100% of the children coming into care in an emergency situation. So we're we're prepared to deliver emergency aid to about 6,500 kids. We've been able to increase the impact of children receiving some sort of grant or opportunity from the Wonder Fund by tenfold in our first year. It's been an incredible sprint of a year. We gave over uh, probably over a thousand different individual grants, and then we had thousands and thousands of children benefit from large-scale opportunities like a partnership that we've created with the Museum of Science where children and foster families can go and visit the Museum of Science as many times as they would like for free in this year. And we're just going to keep building that program. And it's an incredible opportunity for people. What I thought it was going to be a a project, I thought I was going to, you know, sort of help it grow, uh, help it build some awareness and serve more kids. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that it was it wasn't scalable. It needed um, it needed to be built. It needed to be rebranded. It needed to have additional programs added into it and built out so that it could serve more children. The Department of Children and Families in Massachusetts serves over fifty thousand children on any given day, and to wow. to get That's... resources and yeah, to get to fifty thousand kids is hard you know it just it takes a while so we had to we had to build it up so you know this has taken more and more of my focus and my time but it is by far the most challenging and satisfying thing I've ever done 
I love the mission and I and you can feel and see the impact of the work that we do on the children and families who are served. I was just going to ask you to kind of tell us a story about that. You you must have seen so many examples of um, kids for whom the fund it's changed their lives. It's made a difference. Can you give us some examples of you know the the way the fund has helped kids that you know of? We work through the frontline social workers, so we don't provide any any direct service. We don't run a camp or give ballet lessons, but, but, you, but you we fund those. we will fund whatever. The social worker and the and the child decide the individual child wants or needs to do. So it could be big things or small things. We had a little boy recently who was adjusting really well to his new foster home, but his social worker noticed that he wasn't engaging in after school activities and stuff like that. So she she talked to him and got him to tell her that the reason he wouldn't sign up for Little League is because he didn't have a baseball glove, and he was embarrassed. And he didn't think he could ask his foster family for a baseball glove. So we bought him a baseball glove. He was able to play Little League, engage with his friends, be part of his community. And that's a moment that really matters for a child. It can be really, really important. And, and that's just a small thing. A, big, a bigger thing would be we, we had a young man who had grown up in the foster care system, and when he turned 18, he graduated from high school, which was a big deal. And he decided that he wasn't going to pursue college or anything. That was not what he wanted to do. What he wanted to do was get a truck driving license so he could get a great job. He found a program that he wanted to be in. He got accepted. He got going on this program. And then he needed extra help with his tuition. So we helped him pay his tuition. He's now graduated from that program. He has his truck driver's license and he has a great job. And to me, what's really transformative about that is he now knows that he made that happen and he can see a pathway for his own self-reliance and, and a future that he knows he can make for himself. And that's transformative. That's really important. And we will do anything that a child wants or needs because you never know what's going to resonate with a kid. You know, it could be trombone or ballet or, you know, uh, prom dress or whatever it is we want to make that happen. So before the Wonder Fund, the Department of Family and Children must have just kind of come up, kept coming up against these roadblocks of things kids need, but that they couldn't do. So this has really been a, a transformative vehicle for that. Yes. The state does a ton for the Department and Children and Families, and they do have um, resources that they can access for things kids need above and beyond the basic things like health care. But there's a limit to you know how far those dollars go. So we are able to add on above and beyond what the state can do. And it is really exciting to be able to, to watch the social workers deliver these extra things to kids and it changes kids lives. Uh, Lauren just tell us a little bit more about who these kids are I mean 50,000 is such a big number they're not all I'm, I'm assuming kind of foster kids but you'd mentioned that a couple of times uh, are they low-income kids or they come from difficult family circumstances what should we understand about these kids who so need and deserve this kind of support I think what you need to understand is that children become engaged with the Department of Children and Families because something bad happens in their family and um, and it could it could be a lot of things. 
neglect is probably the most common reason. And neglect can take a lot of forms. But these are children. They are in every single city and town in Massachusetts. They are on your kid's team. They are in your kid's classroom. They are everywhere. And they're not all low-income kids. They're not all urban kids. They are every kid. And they're probably the least responsible for the situation they're in, right? I mean, it's kind of it happened to them. All right. I mean, yeah, no child is responsible for trauma that happens. (laughs) You know, I mean, um, kids are dependent on the adults in their lives for their survival. And when the adults in their lives aren't able, for whatever reason, to provide for them, the child is the one who suffers. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. But we can intervene and we can change the trajectory of a child's life. And there are a lot of organizations around the state and the country who are working really hard to make that happen. These kids, they're our kids. It's probably fair to say that the opioid crisis has brought a lot of kids into the attention or under the umbrella of DCF because, you know, parents become unable to take care of them if they're, you know, dealing with an opioid addiction. You know, someone, a coach, a teacher, a guidance counselor notices that a child is something's not right. And so they'll report that and DCF will investigate and try to see what we can do to um, to help to help that family. I know the writer James Baldwin uh, used to say, these are all our kids and we will either profit by or pay for whatever they become. Uh, which is another version of really what you just said, you know, because I mean, it's, it's really, it's up to us and we will profit by or pay for it one way or the other. Um, Absolutely they, true. They're all our kids. You know, when I think about our work at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign uh, and some similarities to what you've described, um, so some of it is getting resources to kids who need it, but a lot of it is not just financial. It's about being their voice. It's about being a voice for them or an advocate or a champion for them. And that's often what's missing in the system is somebody that will stand up and say, pay attention to what's going on with these kids here. And when you do that, then you're kind of like pushing against an open door. People, when they see it, that, oh, yes, I want to help. Okay, what, what do we need to do that? Chris, your industry and your restaurants in particular are engaged in a lot of community activities. You've been very generous participants in Share Strength's Taste of the Nation events, uh, in our anti-hunger work. How do you decide the kind of things that you get involved in? And I, I know enough from working with restaurants for the last 35 years at Share Strength that you do get asked to participate in almost every cause that anybody could imagine. <laughs> we do, and we, we love to do as much as we can. Um, I, you're right. It's certainly something that you you don't want to ever say no you never want to not step up because a lot of times these are people that not only are doing great things but they're people that are supporting us as a restaurant and so you feel compelled to always want to give back whether it be through a gift letter or a gift certificate one of the things that i've always felt strongly is it's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day of the restaurant grind that um, not only myself but my team doesn't always have a chance to find the time and the opportunity to give back to physically go and participate in something it became when I early on when I took on my role that 
we were being responsive and reactionary. We were, someone was asking us for help and we were either issuing a gift certificate or a gift letter. And it, it was almost like there was no personal nature to what was going on. Um, I'd, l- I'd love to see over the years that um, all the events and the things that are opportunities, not only for chefs and restaurants to go give back, but also a really sense of camaraderie and a sense of community that people get to spend time together. I wanted to try to take another step beyond that, which was to find something that each one of our restaurants could participate in that they could really make a priority for our group and something that not only myself and our organization, but our entire team at that restaurant could stand behind um, that we would embrace in terms of helping them if they needed any uh, structuring of the organization in case they needed anything in terms of fundraising efforts on site with us, but also to go on site and to be able to work directly, whether it be um, at uh, Grill 23 and Bar, a good friend of mine, Adam Moreau, uh, who's a former Navy SEAL, started an organization called One Summit. Um, One Summit uh, basically brings in about 30 uh, Navy SEALs every year, and they pair each of the SEALs with a child from Dana-Farber um, at a climbing wall in Watertown. Um, now, this sounds kind of crazy in a sense because, um, you know, you first thought is, well, can you know these kids, you don't want to do anything to hurt the kids that are they, they, they strong enough to go out there. Well, from firsthand knowledge, the thing that's amazing is when you put these kids together with the SEALs, um, Navy SEALs are there and their job is to learn how to overcome adversity. And so, you know, what greater model for that than kids who are fighting for their lives? And when these kids and these SEALs get together and spend the day, um, not only do the kids learn an incredible inspiration and somebody who's really, you know, sort of that pinnacle of fitness and uh, working with them, but also um, the SEALs take away just as much. They get to see kids that, you know, are just as strong as they ever could be, both mentally and physically. And so to be a part of that, Adam came to me and asked if we would uh, start. He had never done one before. And so we embraced that at Grill 23. And, and over the last five years or so, Adam's now built that into an East Coast and a West Coast operation. And um, Adam's one of the most inspiring guys that I know. I joke around with them that my, someday I might see him running for president or something like that, or maybe governor at some point when Governor Baker decides <laughs> that he doesn't want to uh, you know, run, for, run anymore. But um, it's really uh, people like that, that I love to try to uh, get with and work together in partnership and bring our staff in. At um, all of our restaurants, we work very closely with the Boys and Girls Club of Boston um, because I've always felt that, to me, in the community, that was my most impactful way to get involved directly with the kids in the city that really need it most. Um, we needed a partner, and we needed to find um, somebody that we could go in and use our talents and our skills to be able to apply it and make a difference in our community. So um, we started working with them in conjunction with Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, as well as um, a group called Green City Growers. And we started at one club in Dorchester at the Blue Hill Club, uh, planned and planted and cultivate a fruit and vegetable garden with the kids. So we had about six or seven kids that um, came in the first day and we went through the seed catalog and you know, eventually grew the vegetables and that we built an actual garden at the club and then eventually would pull items from the garden and work with them every week to cook and teach them not only about where their food comes from, but also about making some healthier life choices and, you know, healthier eating choices. Over the last, I think this will be our fifth year of doing it, uh, we've gone from one club and seven kids to now we do eight clubs of the Boys and Girls Club, and I think we probably have almost 250 kids that are involved in the program. Um, we built all the gardens at all the clubs for um, for the kids. We work with Green City Growers, who is just incredible in terms of education and making sure these gardens get taken care of. 
Um, and the kids get to actually physically watch what's happening. And these are kids that have never seen a garden. We bring them on farm visit every year, um, which is really impactful. They get to go on a tractor and pull corn from the field and eat it raw for the first time. And we, we make every effort we can to try to put them in front of situations that not only show uh, that food is something that doesn't just come at a grocery store, but that actually a lot of work goes into it. But also we want them to think and be more excited. I know if I see corn in a field, I want to go make that make a great salad or something just because it's fun. You see where well, this stuff comes if, from. If I, so. see a, if I see a tractor in a field, I want to go sit on the tractor. Well, yeah, so we, I that, get it, that. Was, it was hard to get them off the <laughs> yeah. tractor. And we actually had them picking blueberries, and it turned into a big contest every year of who can pick more. I lose every year because I, I basically too nice. I pour them in everybody's bowl for them. But we, uh, <laughs> but we really do have a lot of fun with it. And we, we try to make an impact on these kids. Um, and what we get is so much more because our team really sees firsthand the difference they can make. Um, you know, we do restaurants, we do food, what we do, it's not changing the world, so to speak, but in a way it is. And that's something that I try to impart to our team, which is, you know, I always get mad at them when they say, you know, Oh, it's just a restaurant. It's just a, you know, food job. Who cares? Well, we, if you really care, you can find a way to make a difference with it. And that's something that I, that I try to impart in our team, but I'm so lucky that they, they embrace it and they're, they're really the ones that make it happen. Well, the two of you are actually more aligned than I realized when we first sat down. I'm going to take credit for kind of knowing that somewhere in my subconscious and bringing you two together. But, <laughs> um, I, I, and really, in terms of your interests, they're so connected. Um, Lauren, what's the best way for people to um, support the Wonder Fund? Do you do fundraisers? Is there a website? If somebody's listening to this and is inspired, as I'm sure they will be, is there a way they can donate? How does it work? I would love for people to be interested. Um, uh, we have a website. It is wonderfundma.org. And you can go on there and learn about what we're doing and see some of the um, events that we engage in. You can donate online if you'd like. Um, and, you know, you can contact us that way if you're interested in, you know, we do a huge holiday gift drive and we do a ton of... Um, sort of pick and pack events where we stock a, a closet um, at a DCF office um, with new items that a child would need in an emergency situation, like pajamas and socks and underwear, diapers and things like that. Um, and we do events all over the state where we put those um, emergency kits together. And um, that's a really fun event to be part of because you can really feel that you know what you're doing is really making making a an impression a great impression on a child and it's it's really fun and chris tell us the name again of adam's organization i want to make sure people got sure, that Sure, absolutely it's called one summit one uh, summit yeah and i believe it's one summit.org uh, and adam laroe and uh you he, they absolutely could use support they actually pay 100 percent uh, for the, the seals to be able to fly over to Boston. So they're, if you think about it, they're coming from all different parts of the world. Many of them are actually active seals. So, uh, and to think about the fact that they're also, they are, they spend so much time away from their families and for them to take time on their personal time to leave their families, to come do this, um, just makes you know, your heart want to do anything you can to help them. And so that's what I encourage people is um, they do several fundraisers every year um, that you can see their website, but they also are always open to donations that, that go 100% to, uh, to helping fund the efforts of Adam and the One Summit group. You know, the other um, kind of similar similarity between the two of you is uh, one thing I hear constantly about both of you 
uh, in addition to being successful and competent and you know doing important things is it's just like such a nice guy he everyone says Chris <laughs> is such a nice guy everyone says Lauren is like such a such a nice woman and you obviously are what I want to ask you is kind of a personal question in this era where it feels like civility has just so broken down how do you cope with that probably you know you know probably more um immediately germane to you lauren being in politics um and you're married to a guy who is one of the more civil political leaders uh in our in our country uh so that's kind of a refreshing thing but uh is it hard for you to watch how do you and how do you personally just how, how do you feel like you respond to that just as a person i try to not pay attention to the nastiness i have to focus on the positive stuff in my life and and the goodness in people i'm just gonna be who i am i can't i'm not an actress i can't put on a different face or or pretend to be somebody i'm not you know i'm pretty clear about who i am and what what is important to me and that's where i'm gonna focus People say to me all the time when they meet me, like, you know, get introduced to like, you know, this is the first lady of Massachusetts. And they're like, oh, you're so normal. Like, well, <laughs> I, you know, like I'm who I always have been. I don't know what you were expecting. And, I, I you know, but but thanks, I guess. <laughs> well, we were talking earlier about how Massachusetts is one of only three states in which the uh, the first lady doesn't really have an office or a staff or a security detail. Uh, and it and probably makes you, in a way, more, you probably miss some of that support, but it probably makes you more accessible to people. And they probably feel like they can connect with you more without having to go through those layers. Yeah, well, Massachusetts is one of three states that doesn't have a governor's residence. When, when we first came into office, um, I met with all of the former first ladies, and they're incredibly generous with advice and counsel. And one of the funniest things was um, Jan Salucci said to me, you know, Massachusetts really doesn't have a use for a first lady. And she said, you need to really pursue your own passions and have your own life because you don't have an official role. Um, and she said, you know, Massachusetts from its founding has been anti-royalist and we're never going to treat our governor and first lady like kings and queens. So, you know, she was sort of saying, get used to it because this is <laughs> this is it. This is what you get. But for me, it's been great because I, you know, I get to blaze my own trail. I get to create my own path. And it's been it's been an amazing adventure. I'm I'm so honored and blown away that I get to do this. It's incredible. You know, our experience at Share Our Strength with the No Kid Hungry campaign is first ladies and first spouses have made such an enormous difference, partly for the reason you've described, which is in some cases, even if they do have an office or a structure, they still get to, you know, kind of pick their and prioritize their issues. They don't have to respond to every single public issue the way the governor does. So in Virginia, um, a former first lady now, Dorothy McAuliffe, uh, just an amazing champion for our No Kid Hungry work. In Nevada, uh, Republican uh, First Lady Kathleen Sandoval, they've subsequently been divorced and, or separated and divorced. But uh, she was also just an amazing force for our No Kid Hungry work. And we made progress that, you know, it, and again, it was that voice, it was that willingness to pay attention, to shine a light on issues that there was no substitute for. And it's, uh, it's an enormously powerful position in a lot of ways. 
it's it's completely new territory for me. So it, I mean, I've been doing this for three and a half years now. It's uh, it's been a real learning curve for me to figure out how to use the platform and the power of the you know this office, even though it's not an office, you know, but just the concept of first lady and how do I how do I marshal that power for good and it's it's really interesting I, and it's it's very foreign to me so I'm, I might be a little <laughs> slow on the uptake uh, Chris in terms of the mr. nice guy label uh, at a restaurant which is kind of, you know a lot of people come to as kind of an oasis to get away from uh, all of the divisions and polarizations and incivility uh, you've got to be nice to everybody I'm assuming whatever their politics are uh, how do you how do you manage or reconcile? whatever your own political views are, and I don't even know them, with, um, with that role? I think, it, especially in restaurants and hospitality, at least from my standpoint, there's a time and a place to certainly uh, to you know share opinions and things like that. Uh, but the table is not one of them. I always look at it like we one of our hallmarks for our new restaurant, Hudson Yards Grill in New York, is there's a place for everyone at our table. Um, one of the, the questions of that project at Hudson Yards is that is this, you know, just going to bring an elite level of people into a part of the city and no one in New York is really going to uh, want to come there? I don't believe that. I think that people in New York are going to love this project. They're going to want to come from all different parts to check it out. Um, our restaurant is designed. We want a place for everyone. If you're the you know, the person who was a foreman on the job doing the construction for us, or if you're the business executive that just moved into a tower there, or if you're in a resident uptown, downtown, we want you to feel comfortable um, in the restaurant. And I think that that's something that comfortability and approachability is something that I always preach to our staff. And I think that that's incredibly true in the way that we accept people into our restaurant. And my ability to sort of be nice to everyone all the time is something that for me is is easy because I feel like it's a lot easier in life if you're just nice to people and you have a positive attitude. I think that um, I always joke around when we certainly have people that come in and they're not exactly warm and fuzzy when they come in and that sometimes they just, they're at a point in their life where they're just people that they love to, that they're just frustrated and they're projecting it in a sense. And do you, you have to you learn mix their that, drinks a little stronger. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Yeah, no, but, we, but you learn to sort of learn to, instead of getting angry, I tell our staff, you know, look at it like an opportunity to, to turn someone around. Well, um, that question was easy compared to this next one. Oh, jeez. Um, uh, <laughs> and it's because our, our listeners are passionate about food and they're passionate about restaurants. And so the question is, it'll be harder for you, Chris, if you had to recommend some kind of hidden gem, not one of your own restaurants, but another that you think people should try or that it's your go-to restaurant, um, what, what should our listeners know in the, in the Boston or Massachusetts area? I'm from Marblehead, Massachusetts originally, so going up to the North Shore, and if you're from around there ever, and you know about those uh, roast beef sandwiches and things like that that come from up there, I think you can't go wrong in any town. I, I could be here for two hours to describe that, but I would say the, the most uh, impactful part of the roast beef sandwiches from the North Shore would be uh, that they're sliced hot right out of the oven, and they throw them on a slicer, and they do paper-thin uh, slices of roast beef. They pile it up on a uh, on a bulky roll. Uh, if you get a super beef, you're going to get onion. <laughs> if you get a regular, you're going to get a large. You're going to get seeded rolls. If you get a junior beef, you're going to get non. You're just going to get plain. Usually they call it sauce, which is barbecue sauce. 
uh, that's really the staple of it. And from there, it's all about the addition. So there's actually even a terminology with it. So if you say, I want a roast beef three-way, that's sauce, mayo, and cheese. Uh, and from there, you add your toppings after that. So it's kind of like being Philadelphia with steak and cheese, where if you yeah, want with or without, around, they throw you they throw you out of the uh, line. So when you go to Pat's cheesesteak, you have to say I want I want a cheesesteak with, with, or you have yeah. to say I want one without, and exactly. it's all you have to say. Exactly. Um, anyhow, having this conversation before lunch gets me very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was going to ask you, uh, Lauren, without it, with if you don't have a governor's mansion, you probably don't have a staff cooking for you either. Right? <laughs> so, You're looking at the cook. Yeah, looking at the cook. Uh, do you like to cook? I do love yeah, to cook, yeah. and um, unfortunately, I don't really do it much anymore because we're never home. Yeah, you're on the move. Well, you know, and if I take the time to plan something and go and cook, and then, you know, and then I'm eating it alone in my kitchen, I just get mad. So, you know, I, I don't cook as much as I as I would like to, but I, there's it's so, you know, I'm sure that's where you come from. It's so satisfying to cook something and and have someone else enjoy it that just it's just amazing yeah. you know well they say food is love right it's a way to share it's a way to share love and care for someone else it's in you know even if you don't make it yourself sharing food with other people is really special have you got a go-to restaurant we should know about you know we love we love to go out to restaurants actually charlie would be a better one to be sitting in this seat because he travels all over the state and he you know, occasionally gets to go to really unusual places all over the place. But when we're at home, we live in Swampscott, which is on the North Shore next door to where Chris lives. So we we love G Bar and Kitchen in Swampscott. That's my mom's favorite restaurant. She is loves, it? She loves really? it there, yeah. It's really small. It's really good. I pretty much always order the same thing. They have great food and they have great specials. But um, What do you order? He, he makes this um, appetizer that's a tuna tower, and it's tuna tartare, but it's really, really good. And then he makes this beet salad that are just these different color beets, and they're warm. And then the the cheese is soft, and uh, it's just it's just he's, okay. it's really good. You've sold us on it now. <laughs> well done. Wow, these are good tips. Yeah. Last week, just last Thursday, we did a hundred and three mile bike ride with eight Boston chefs starting in Salem and going to uh, Newburyport, Gloucester, Essex. We Kimball Farm was one of our water stops, oh, great. actually, which I didn't know before. Yeah. But uh, the, the farm stands in that area are just amazing. Oh, it's world. just really incredible, particularly, I guess, this time of year. So last thing, just tell me what's next for uh, each of you. Lauren, is there any circumstance that you could imagine in which you would ever run for off of someday, particularly if, like, Chris and I got behind you? Absolutely no. not. <laughs> nope. I'm. I'm really. Uh, you know. I. I'm. I'm not into politics. It's interesting, well, and I married into, into it. But you're into serving people, and you do it very well. I'm. Um. I'm all about service. Yeah. Very service oriented. I don't think I have the right skill set to be a an elected official. That's not where I am. That's what makes you so appealing, though. <laughs> That's but the catch twenty two. No, I I think I'm I found um, I found something that uh, I'm incredibly passionate about, and I want to keep working in this arena and building the Wonder Fund so that it can serve more and more kids. I want to be able at some point to say, you know, we have the ability to serve any child who who is in you know involved with the Department of Children and Families. And then maybe we can 
we can broaden it beyond there to just be able to say we can serve any child who needs something. Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, somebody who's stayed in the nonprofit sector for 34 years, I completely get where you're coming from and understand the the reason I want to just kind of keep that focus because it is it's fulfill it's not just fulfilling it's important and it gets things done which uh, sometimes with politics and ideology you can't get done the same way. Chris, I think I know what's next for you, which is Hudson Yards Grills. Is there anything else that we should know about? And when's that going to open? Hudson Yards Grill will open along with all the other restaurants at Hudson Yards in uh, March of 2019, so the spring. Okay, so coming around. That's coming. Yeah, so we're uh, we're involved, you know, in different capacities in several of the restaurants there. So I'm really excited about the uh, mix of chefs that we've brought to the table. We have Thomas Keller uh, doing a steakhouse concept. We have David Chang coming in. We have Milo's. Uh, We have Jose Andres in partnership with Ferran and Albert Adria doing a Spanish market. Um, and then we have a few other people, D&D restaurants from Bluebird in London. So pulling them all together is going to be my focus along with our restaurants for quite some time. Uh, we all are participating and we look at our restaurant collection much like its own little neighborhood. Um, each restaurant's been curated to complement each other. So there really aren't um, restaurants that are stepping on each other's toes. So there's no need for us to feel like we're directly competing against each other. And what's best for all of us is to come up with um, a plan that really uh, creates a neighborhood. Hudson Yards is actually designated as New York's newest area. So it's actually, you know, Soho, uh, you know, Chelsea, well, there's Hudson Yards now. And so we feel like how many times in your life do you have an opportunity to forge a path of a neighborhood in Manhattan? And um, we've all been lucky enough to be tabbed with that responsibility from a culinary standpoint. So um, our contribution is to, again, to create that neighborhood restaurant. I can't wait. Thank you. Hudson Yards Grill. Correct. Excellent. Um, Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And Lauren Baker, what an honor, First Lady of Massachusetts, to have you here, to hear about the Wonder Fund, to really be inspired by your work with the Wonder Fund and your leadership of it. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. I'm so thrilled to be here. This is really fun. Well, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks so much to our producer, Paul Woodle, Woody, uh, to my sister, Debbie Shore, who started Share Strength with me and is usually on this podcast when she can be, and to the whole team at Share Strength that makes this happen. Thanks so much. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. 